Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Well, friends, I'm excited, and I think this is the next to last time that I have to do this preaching into a camera thing. I've got this week, we've got next week, and then in July, our plan and our hope is that we are going to be together in person, getting to worship together, pray together, and man, I am pumped for that day. Cannot wait to, to be together again, and man, there's all kinds of stuff going on in our world, and right now, I'm burdened, and so I've got this other part of me that just knows we've got conversations and things that we need to be about, and the that our world needs uh, the, the people of Christ to really lead out in this time. And so there's big things we need to be talking about, need to be doing and praying for uh, as a body. And we're excited to get to do that again in person in July. And just pray that um, pray that everything continues to move in the right direction, that we're able to get together again then. Let me pray for us as we start. Father, I do pray that you would open doors for us to be able to meet together here in just a couple weeks, Father. I ask that you would uh, stem the tide of uh, this sickness and that it would that it would go away, that it be eradicated, Father, that you'd work uh, to provide uh, ways of recovery, Father, that you'd protect life, that you would save lives, that you would heal those who are sick, Father, and uh, that you would uh, give us wisdom as we navigate these waters. Father, I pray for just the, the school and everything that we need to have happen for those doors to open for us to meet together in a couple weeks. And Father, thank you that everything seems to be going in the right direction there. And just ask that you continue to watch over that and give us wisdom as we lead in this time. And Father, beyond that, Father, for just the people of our world, Lord, would you, would you just rain down your grace and your mercy on us? Would you make yourself known to us? Would you draw people to yourself? Would you cause people to seek you out, uh, Father, by your spirit and allow us to be a bright light shining uh, the goodness of Jesus in our world? Father, we pray all these things in his name. Amen. Well, this morning I want to start with kind of a strange verse to start a sermon with. Uh, and I remember the first time that I that I discovered this verse and that someone kind of unpacked it for me, it just kind of took me aback. And as I've watched uh, kind of our world over the last several weeks and months, this verse has just been kind of gnawing at me and I've been thinking about it. So I just want to share with you First Peter 4.14. It says, if you're insulted in the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory of God rests upon you. Verse 15, but none of you, let none of you suffer as a murderer, as a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. And it's that last word that kind of grabbed me the first time I got this, because it just seems like it's such a strange thing to put in that list, in that list of, 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 of things that, that could go wrong in us and cause us to suffer. A murderer, a thief, an evildoer. And then he just throws in this thing that feels different called a meddler. What is a meddler? Well, it actually t- combines kind of four aspects of uh, the, the, the Greek word. If you unpack it, really just says it's another man's overseer, that you're trying to be another man's overseer. You're trying to be another man's boss. It, uh, it's defined this way, one who busies himself in the affairs of others in an unwarranted manner, a busybody, a meddler. Now, does that feel to you like something on the level of a murderer or a thief? 
Oftentimes it doesn't, and yet it's something that the scriptures warn us about, that, uh, that, that Peter's warning us about, saying, look, don't be, you don't want to suffer because of a meddler. When I think of our world right now, and I think of some of the suffering that's going on, I just think so much of it has to do with the fact that, I mean, we are trying to be everyone's overseer. We're trying to control and correct everyone around us. And we, we're, we're launching into these, uh, these kind of dialogues and diatribes where we're constantly trying to manipulate other people. And at the same time, we have so little peace and joy and strength in our own life from which to operate. And I think that creates a problem. It actually creates suffering in our world, not health. Now, I think there's... Kind of Jesus talked about this also in, uh, when, he was, when he was teaching. He says, stop trying to pick the speck out of someone else's eye when you got this giant plank sticking out of your own eye. Don't, don't, don't kind of lose perspective on what it is you ought to be doing. Focus on yourself and your own issues rather than trying to dig up someone else's. It's like someone trying to strain the gnat out of their soup when their house is burning down. It's like, bro, your focus may be a little bit off here. You may not be noticing all the things you need to notice. And last week we looked at the Samaritan woman at the well, and there's a contrast there because Jesus seemed to meddle a little bit. He seemed to get in her business a little bit. He seemed to kind of poke and prod and ask some questions and kind of kind of get into kind of the, her heart issues and what was going on in her life. And it raised the question for me that as Jesus engaged her, it worked out for her good, and she was grateful and appreciative. But how is that different? than from a meddler. How is it that Jesus engaged her in a way that was different from what Peter's talking about is the sin of meddling in someone else's business? Well, I think it has to do with uh, really the, the central idea of love. Jesus has a strength and authority about him that everyone seemed to recognize. He's got this kind of this kind of boldness to the way he wasn't he wasn't soft like Jello. He was afraid to he wasn't afraid to take a stand and speak truth to people. And yet Jesus also had this vulnerable and compassionate side that allowed him to come alongside someone and serve them. But their, his focus was not on his good but on their good. And I think that that aspect of love is what is differentiates between kind of manipulation and ministry, between meddling and actually caring for someone else. And so Jesus was a, was a servant leader who sought the good of others, not by control or manipulation, but by ministry and service. And so today, we're going to look at a famous episode where Jesus taught us what service looks like. And that is in John chapter 13. If you've got your Bibles, please turn there with me. And we're going to look at kind of the standard of a humble servant that Jesus was and the pattern that he displayed for us and calls us to calls us into to follow after him and i'm convinced that if if we're going to answer the questions that our world is asking of us it's going to be because we serve like jesus and because we love like jesus and so let's look at jesus and see what we can learn john 13 starting in verse 1 says now before the feast of the passover when jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the father having loved his own who were in the world he loved them to the end during supper, while the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with a the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said, Lord, do, not, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand, but afterwards you will understand. 
Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share or part with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, if not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, because, but it is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. So Jesus does this kind of surprising or shocking thing of washing his disciples' feet. In verse 1, it says that he knew when... Uh, he knew that his hour had come and it was time for him to depart out of this world. In this whole section of John, he used that word, that word world 40 times, uh, or about 40 times. And really it's to contrast, and he's going to set this up for a little bit later, even in this passage, where he's going to contrast the way that he lives and the way that his disciples are to live from the way that the world lives. And so he sets up this kind of difference between the two. He's saying that, that the, there should be a difference in the way the world's act, world acts and the way his followers act. There should be a difference in the way that his... That that the world lives in the way that his followers live, the way that, his, that the world treats others and the way that his followers treat others. There should be something distinctly different about them. And so then he says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, Jesus knows he's coming to the end of his life. He's about to go to the cross. And so he's going to lay down his life for them. But it says that he, having loved the ones who were in the world, meaning he didn't, he wasn't abandoning them. He was going to save them, but he was going to leave them in the world. And they were left there to be his representatives. And so they were the ones who were to take who he was and display it and demonstrate the, the kind of service and the kind of love and the kind of teaching and the kind of life of Jesus to the world once Jesus was gone. Verse 2, it says during supper, and this is a shared meal, um, and, and it says something shocking there, and it stops, and John wants you to understand this, because it says, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. John sets this passage up and says, Jesus is going to act the servant to these men, even though he knew what, Jesus, what Judas was about to do. Now, Jesus, this, this Judas had entered into kind of a joint venture with, with Satan. This is a demonic venture that Judas was going to betray Jesus, sell him out for some silver coins, and allow Jesus to be killed. And John wants us to see how shocking Jesus' love was, that Jesus, though he knew what what Judas was about to do, Jesus still washed Judas' feet. Let me ask you this. Are there people in this world that it's hard for you to love? Like, are there some people that just, they grate at you, they grind at you, and you just think, man, I don't know how I could possibly serve that person? Well, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna venture a guess and say, I, I bet you that they have not entered into a pact with Satan to destroy your life. And yet Jesus maintained his godliness and his character to serve even Judas, knowing what it was Jesus, Judas was about to do. So the next time you don't want to serve someone, maybe, maybe you just say to yourself, hey, at least it's not Judas. And then you kind of man up and go do the thing you need to do. Uh, verse 3, uh, Jesus was knowing that the Father, or it says, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, he had, he was, he had come from God and was going back to God, meaning he knew how the story was going to end. He knew that the, God the Father had sent him into the world to rescue, and he was about to be returned to the Father. And so he knew the hardship he was about to face. He also knew what was in the other side, that one day he'd be delivered from this. And so then it says he rose from his supper. He got up and he did what needed to get done. He was resolved. He, that's conviction. That, that knowing all the things that were coming his way and all the difficulty of the days ahead, he still rose and went and did what needed to happen. He knew that, this, that the cost would be 
his life, and yet he knelt and, and served these men. He possessed authority over these men, and yet he took the role of a servant and, and embraced his vulnerability to serve them. He used his exalted position to serve others who were in a lowly position. Verse 4 and 5, it says that he laid aside his garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist and then poured water in a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the very towel that had been wrapped around him. This is a remarkable thing for Jesus, and it actually took the kind of stunned the, the disciples as they were processing what it is that had happened. But Jesus takes the role of a menial servant. The foot washer in that culture was the lowest of the low. It was the, the person that was the lowest in the house that when everyone else came in, this is the person that had to serve the rest of uh, the rest of the household. And so Jesus, when it, when it says he took off his outer robe, what it means is he, he dressed like a menial servant. He, he took on the dress of a servant. When he knelt down to wash their feet, he took the position of a servant. And when he used his own, his own cloak to scrub their dirty feet, he fulfilled the task of a servant. Jesus, who was their, their teacher, he was their master, he was their Lord, he was their king, he was also their servant. And Jesus wanted them to understand that. And you see how shocking this was from Peter's response in verse 6. Peter just kind of taken back and says, Lord, do you wash even my feet? And uh, Peter's such a unique guy among the disciples. It's like the other disciples were shocked into silence, but Peter's never shocked into silence. Peter's always going to just run full bore into, a, into an issue and find out what he needs to do. And so he's taken aback and says to Jesus, you're not going to wash my feet, are you? And Jesus says, well, if I don't, then you can't have any, any participation, any relationship, any future with me. And so then Peter goes to flips to the other extreme and then says, well, then just wash all of me. Why don't you wash my head, wash my hands, and uh, just keep going, Jesus. Well, uh, and, and it's kind of a funny scene, and so often you see Peter in that kind of a role. And so then in verses 12 and, and following, Jesus really wants to, them to make, to make sure that they understand exactly what it is he was doing. He wanted to make sure that they knew how to apply this object lesson that he had shown them. So in verse 12 it says, when Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. And if I am your Lord and teacher and have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So Jesus explains what it is he has been doing, and he shows them exactly what he wants them to understand. Jesus' washing their feet would be shocking. What he's about to do by dying and going to a cross is going to be even more shocking. And Jesus is trying to prepare them for what is ahead, and he's trying to lay the course, but he's also trying to instruct them and, and show them the kind of love that he is their king is going to demonstrate. Now what Jesus is saying to his disciples is, I've, I've loved you beyond all expectations. Now you go and do the same. 
you go love in the same way that I've loved. In verse 15, he says, I've given you an example. The word there is really could be, a, I've given you a pattern. So he's given, he's like, I've given you the mold in which you are to be formed into. So I've given you the cookie cutter and you guys need to be pressed with that same shape. So you need to serve as I have served. And he wants them to understand that this is how they are to live. That when people look at us, they ought to see Jesus. When people looked at his disciples, they should see him as well. There's an amazing story I heard that kind of reminds me of this about Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great was uh, was leading in, in battle, leading in war. Had these teenage teenage soldiers that were part of his uh, part of his army, and had one of the young soldiers that came to her that had been brought back that had fled from the battle scene and had been afraid. And they dumped him at his at the feet of Alexander the Great and just said, "Hey, here's the one who ran away." And Alexander the Great said, "Young man, what is your name?" And the man said, Alexander. He was named after his emperor, Alexander. And he said, son, what is your name? And he said, Alexander, my king. And he said, son, what is your name? He said, Alexander, my lord. And he's desperate at this point. And Alexander looked him in the eye and said, son, either change your behavior or change your name. Meaning, if you're going to bear my name and you're going to bear, you're going to serve in my army, then you need to you need to be a soldier like I'm a soldier. You need to fight like I fight. And Jesus is doing something very similar to that with these disciples. He said, "Look, if I am your Lord and Master and I served you, then you ought to serve one another." And so you're not greater than you're not greater than your Master. You're not greater than the Lord. So therefore, you ought to be a servant as I am a servant. Friends, if Jesus came to us and spoke to us and just said, friends, what is your name? And you said, my name is Christian. I think the same thing applies. If you're going to bear his name, you need to bear his behavior. We need to look like, we need to look like our Lord. Verse 17, there's a little word that shows up again that uh, we've seen several times as we've talked over the last couple weeks, but it's the word if. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. He's, he's making a conditional thing. There, there's blessing, there's goodness, there's wholeness, there's flourishing that comes if you actually live the way I'm calling you to live. So we need to learn to walk in the way of Jesus and there's good that always follows from that. In fact, what Jesus is saying is, I served you, now you go serve others. There's a, there's a ripple effect to what Jesus wants to happen with his disciples. And as you think about the, this process of discipleship, the, the word disciple means learner or, uh, or follower or pupil. It's someone who, who comes underneath a master, learns their way of life, and then follows suit and, and lives in the same way. And so those who are served by Jesus are supposed to offer service like Jesus. Those who receive service from Jesus are supposed to serve others in the same way sort of a way uh, is a phrase we use sometimes in churches we call Christ likeness that we are supposed to become more and more like Christ uh, Philippians 2 tells us that having have this mind in ourselves that that's ours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the very form of God did not count his equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to but he willingly emptied himself taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men eventually dying upon a cross and being obedient all the way through to his father. It's why, as a church, we oftentimes talk about servant leadership, that our leadership's to be different than the world's leadership because Jesus has overthrown everything. And you saw the shock of the disciples because uh, really what Jesus was teaching them was overthrowing everything they understood about, about position and about power and about privilege and about leadership and about teachers. And it was shocking to them when he got down and knelt and served them and then commanded them to serve also. And Jesus used his exalted position to humbly exalt those around him. And we ought to be the kind of people that look like that. 
you know, I think about what this looks like in our world, and I, I think we ought to be the kind of people that have a distinct enough life that people look at us and say things like, you know, I notice that you don't, that you don't play around and cancel culture the way everyone else does. I notice you don't blast angry opinions online like everyone else. I notice that you get along with people who aren't like you or don't look like you or, or, or maybe don't think exactly like you. I, I notice that you laugh at yourself more than most people. I notice that you say you're sorry really easily. I notice that you're full of grace and generosity. And they, they ought to know that we're different from the rest of the world and they, wanna, they ought to ask us about that. Why is it you seem different? And the answer is, well, I've been loved by Jesus and I want to love others like Jesus. I want to live like Jesus. I think this has implications for the way we handle all kinds of issues. I think it has implications for the way we discuss race and politics and pandemics and uh, the way we think about business and family. And, uh, this is our chance, I think, for us to shine brightly in our day. For the church to rise up and to meet the need of the day is for us to be servants like Jesus was a servant who, who forego his position in order to, in order to serve those who, who needed him. And for us, whenever that doesn't happen, whenever we don't live differently than the world, what it highlights for us is that the church has a discipleship problem. That we are not, re, we are, we are not training people to live like Jesus and love like Jesus and serve like Jesus. That there's a deficit to our discipleship and it means that we've got some work to do. Now, as we've talked about in this series, we want to talk about discipleship being a relational process and about the relationships in the church. And really, Jesus' discipleship process was relational. In Mark 3, at the very beginning, uh, kind of at the other end of Jesus' ministry, not, not at the end we just looked at, but when he first was getting, gathering these disciples, it says that he went up on a mountain, he called to him those whom he desired to be with, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and that he might send them out. And so Jesus is gathering these disciples, the same ones that were gathered around the table with him, that he washed their feet. At the very beginning, he gathered them around and said, because he wanted to be with them, he desired them, and he wanted, to, he wanted to, them, them to connect with him on a relational level, but he was also going to send them out and teach them how to do what he did. And so he called those whom he desired so that they might be with him. Paul said the, something similar and followed the same sort of mentality about discipleship. In 1 Thessalonians 2.8, he said, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. So being affectionately desirous of you, relationship, wanting a relationship with you, we didn't just preach the message of God to you, but we shared with you our very lives. We gave you our hearts. I love the way Eugene Peterson translates this. He says, we loved you dearly, not content just to pass on the message. We wanted also to give you our hearts, and we did. Notice there's an undeniable relational focus both on Jesus and the disciples and the way in which they carried out this thing we call discipleship or training people to become more like Jesus. It's, it's impossible to do that apart from relational connection and friendship. And, and it's not transactional, it's relational. I was talking with this guy in my small group several weeks ago after we had finished and everyone had kind of gone and he called me back and just said, man, what are we doing? And there was a, we had just a great conversation about 
both sides of this. And he, he was having some tension because he says, and I feel like we're looking at all the Bible verses, but I feel like we're not really getting into the stuff of our lives. And th there's a reality for us that we see lived out in Jesus' life. We see it lived out in Paul and his teaching, the way he discipled, that we need both word and relationship. We need, we need to bring the truth of God, but we need to bring it to bear on the stuff of our lives. And so you need to, you need, you need to balance between both of those things in our discipleship process. We can't just throw verses at everything, but we've got to take verses and apply them in the nitty gritty stuff of our lives. And that's, that's really the picture, I think, that we begin to see as we think about what relationships look like in the scripture. Did you know that there's uh, almost 60, in the New Testament, there's almost 60 verses that we call the one another verses. And they all speak to the relationships that we're to have and the way we're to relate to one another within, within the body of Christ as followers of Jesus. And it would be impossible for us to follow him and to live out any of these calls without a real sense of devoting yourself to caring for actual people in the actual church. And so as we have had to step back and think online, man, I hope it highlights for you the importance of us stepping back into those one another's. And I think even through this season, I mean, you guys have loved well, you've loved one another well, you've cared for those in your groups well and those in this church well, and uh, we've, we've, we've been able to live out a lot of those one another's. But because of some of the distancing, there's other aspects of that that, man, I'm still hungry to see those fostered and developed and nurtured even further within the life of our church. So when you think about this in our church, you, relationships are key to human transformation. You see that in, in Jesus, you see it in Paul, you see it throughout the history of the church. And so how, what does that look like for us as a church? How do, we, how do we live that out? How do we flesh that out? Well, for us, the primary place where that happens in our groups. And as we think about what, what group life ought to look like within our church, it's, it's a place where we try to live out these one another's, where we learn how to serve like Jesus served in a way in which he did. And discipleship is not about manufacturing something or controlling something. It might be helpful to think of it more like a greenhouse, a greenhouse where everything's alive, but where there's a, an environment that's, that's well positioned to foster new life and to foster growth within a community. That's the kind of environment we need where we can be rooted in Christ-centered relationships that are flourishing and growing and developing over time. So groups can be a path of connection. And so uh, for us, this isn't just a, a biblical value, but it's a strategic value. It's the way in which we want to structure things to try to fulfill the commandments that Christ has called us to do and, and help one another become more Christ-like. And so can they, they're a great place for connection. And some way groups allow the church to get smaller. We are able to sit in circles where we look at each other face-to-face -face instead of sitting in rows where we just listen to someone giving information. We're able to, to look someone in the eye. We're able to see the whites of their eyes and get to know who they are and what's going on inside of them. It's a small enough community to make sure that no one walks alone and that everyone's known as we've talked about as we talked about last week. A groups can also be a path of growth uh, for many people and I think for us one of the tensions we have about this is what does that growth path, path look like? Is it something we're just trying to manufacture people and, and reproduce people that all look the same? That's really not the heart of it and, but I think there's some anxiety sometimes in our groups about the, the misplaced responsibility when we feel responsible to try to change someone and try to make something happen in them we start to feel some anxiety because we know we don't really have the authority or the ability to, to fulfill that and so that's Sometimes we refer to that as the group leader's dilemma. Uh, as one guy said, you can't quit smoking for someone else. Uh, but you can create an environment where they can begin to learn and discover and grow and where we can serve them and practice the one another's and create sort of the ideal environment in which they can then flourish and grow. And so it's not about control. 
ultimately it's it's more about serving people like Jesus and and um, and continuing just to be a blessing to them and, and to wish them well and to love them and create a caring relationship where they can experience trust and time and so if we can create a space where, where where there's trust over a period of time then we and we believe that that over time grace is going to cause them to grow and we trust God with the growth process in people's lives so let me share with you what it might look like for you and me in our lives as we think about how to flesh this out one becoming this kind of community is going to take some creativity on our part it's also going to take some commitment on our part on our part because it's not an easy thing to do i think oftentimes uh, there there's uh, people people hesitate to get into community because they want growth but they don't want the interpersonal rub that happens in relationships and yet we've seen over and over throughout the throughout this that relationships are the thing that actually foster the kind of growth that we need and so romans 12 5 says each member belongs to all the others what that means is that this is an all y'all thing this isn't something that a few people do. This is something that, that the whole body is meant to do together, and we need each other, and we're dependent upon no one another, really interdependent upon one another. And so there is no wholly independent person who's truly following Jesus because he, he puts us together. In his book, uh, Love and Hard Places, Don Carson writes, the church, uh, and this is uh, kind of a famous quote on community, but it, the church is made up of natural enemies. Who bind, what binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they've all been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. What brings us together is Christ, and that's the thing that unites us, and in that, we learn to serve one another, to love one another, to honor one another, to bear one another's burdens, and to live out all those commands of Scripture um, with God's, God's help. So can I share with you three practices for serving like Jesus that I think are ways we can just apply this and try to live it out. And there's many ways you can do this. These are going to be built largely on the one another verses on the New Testament. And some of this comes from some material uh, we've used before. Um, but there are a lot of more ways we could do this. But let me just give you three today. First practice is affirming one another's gifts and strengths. Romans 12, 10, one of my favorite verses really over the last decade uh, is uh, honor one another above yourselves. It means be, be more concerned with praising, affirming, and celebrating others than in being honored yourself. Honor others above yourself. It means we're supposed to be the quickest people on the, on the planet to praise and to celebrate other people. And do you see someone who's doing something well? Then say it out loud. Celebrate that. If you recognize someone's gifts or talents and see that they've got some skills, then tell them and appreciate that. If you see someone who's sacrificing and working hard in order to fulfill a ministry, man, praise them and honor them for that. Thank them for that. Celebrate it. However, James 5, 9 says, do not grumble against one another. And that's the opposite of honoring one another. That's to dishonor someone. And uh, it, the Bible says something really complicated here. It says, don't grumble. That's the whole message. That's it. Just don't do it. And so that's one we need to apply. We're not to grumble against one another. Romans 12, 3 to 8 talks about confirming the gifts of one another. We're supposed to practice affirmation of other people's ministry. That when we see other people living out the things they do, we, we need to affirm that and step into that and honor them for those things. So the first practice, affirming one another's gifts, strengths, and abilities. Uh, the second practice that I think is helpful, especially during this time, affirming one another's equal importance in Christ. Romans 15, 7 says, Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you. And does someone that you know not measure up to your standards? 
<laughs> Welcome to the club. And aren't, aren't you glad for grace? None of us has ever measured up to the standard of Christ. And yet there's grace upon grace, grace that abounds for us and towards us. And so uh, what it says is accept one another, then just as Christ accepted you. And so if, if you think of uh, the way in which you want Jesus to receive you, to offer grace to you, turn and act likewise to those that are around you. Yeah. In the world, people draw distinctions on all kinds of things based on uh, vocation and economics, race, culture, uh, but not in the church. For, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 5 says, have equal concern for one another, meaning for the whole body of Christ, we're to have equal concern for all parts, for all people. Philippians 2, 4, look, let not each of you look out to his own interests, but also look out to the interests of others. Meaning you're not just self-protective. You're not just fearful about your, your ground and your territory, but you're looking for how you can look out for the interests of others and care for them. 1 Peter 5, 5, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. When you have humility towards some, someone else, that means you don't walk around thinking, I have the right way and I need to impose that on them. But there's some humility to the way you do, saying, I want to listen, I want to learn, I want to understand who you are, even when I disagree with you. And we should be a place where it's the most likely place people in the world would come to find a humble interaction about the difficult issues we need to talk about. That's what the scriptures, I think, are telling us. Justin Martyr in the second century, I love this quote. Uh, I'll tell you, this is not a new thing. You're just reacting to something going on in our day. This is something that's been fostered in the history of the life of our church for 2,000 years. Justin Martyr says, we used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of another race or country. But now, because of Christ, we live together with such people and we pray for our enemies. Why did, why did Justin Martyr say that? Because that's what Jesus did. He, he taught them how to do that, and he wants to teach us the same thing. So the third practice, um, we've talked about affirming one another's gifts and strengths and abilities, affirming one another's equal importance in Christ. Third is affirming one another through affection. Romans 16, 16 says, greet one another with a holy kiss, meaning communicate your affection in a visible, tangible way. Now, I don't know that we ever really want to do that. I'm sure that post-COVID, we don't want to try to practice this. It would be really odd to do that in any culture, but uh, at any time, but definitely trying to do this through a mask would be strange. Uh, we're not trying to say we need to apply this exactly, but there is a sense in which it, it was taking a cultural thing of a visible display of affection that you would normally show to someone in that day and saying that within the body of Christ, we ought to have that same kind of visible affection for one another. Now, James 1.19 says, this, another way of affirming one another through affection is be quick to listen and slow to speak. Man, this, this week, it's been pretty painful. And just as I've seen so many pastors and multiple friends of mine step on landmines in the ways in which they've spoken about different issues and different things, and they've had to try to unpack a lot of the things that they've, or some of the things that they've said, and it's partially is because of this, that they were quick to speak, but they weren't slow, to, they, they, they weren't uh, quick to listen. And friends, I think we need to, we need to take this to heart. This is a time, especially for us, where I think we need to listen really well. And we may need to temper our words. We may need to hold back and just be slow before we want to communicate or press something else. Let's not be those who believe our Bibles only when it speaks about the Trinity or only when it speaks about the atonement or only when it speaks about sexuality or family. Let's allow the Bible to speak about everything in our lives, about everything in our world. And let's be slow to speak. Let's lean in and listen well. Let's go so far as to seek out others to whom we might listen to. Where... Uh, 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Life Together writes this. He says, the first service that one owes to others in the fellowship or in the church consists in listening to them. Just as to love God means listening to his word. So beginning to love others means learning to listen to them. Listening can be greater service than speaking. But there is a kind of listening, an impatient, inattentive listening that is only waiting for a chance to speak and thus get rid of the other person. Friends, we want to be those who listen like Jesus did, who leaned in, who wanted to know what was going on in someone else's heart so that he could meet them at their place of need, not listening in order to control them, but listening in order to serve them and and to lift them up. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another. Do you genuinely care for those around you? If you are, you'll ask questions of them. You'll get to know them. You'll inquire about what's going on in their hearts and you'll, uh, you'll, you'll care for them and care for their needs. 1 Thessalonians 3.12. Let your love increase and overflow for each other. And isn't that what you want to see in our church? Just a, a group of people whose love is ever increasing and ever overflowing towards one another. And I think as I, as I think about a community where that would happen, where love is just constantly outflowing from one person to another, and then we invite other people into that community, and they get to move underneath the overflowing love of the people that look like Jesus, that serve like Jesus, that live like Jesus, that treat others like Jesus. And I just got to think that God's going to do good stuff in there to grow me, to grow you, to grow our church. And I want to be a part, and I hope that that, that will be our prayer as we as we get back into gathering together, just that God would ever increase and overflow our love for one another, and that we'd be able to invite other people from our community in and say, hey, come meet the Jesus who taught us how to live like this, and that they might see him even in us as we bear his name in our world. Now, friends, as you go back to John 13 and you think about what it is Jesus said, Verse 15, it says, I've given you an example. I've set for you a pattern, meaning this is a pattern I want you to follow in your life. I've given you an example that you should also do just as I've done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Friends, let's, let's be those who seek the blessing of our master and Lord. Not in order to earn his love, but because we've already been loved by him, we, let's be freed to love others. Because we've been served by Jesus, let's be free to serve others. Let's treat others as we've been treated, with grace, with dignity, um, and, and with love that's beyond, beyond measure. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would mold and shape us as a people, that we might look like Jesus. God, might we come humbly. Might we be willing to strip ourselves of the dressing of position, strip ourselves of the the rights that we have, that we might kneel before others and serve them, that we might lift them up. Father, as Jesus took off his robe, as he knelt, as he washed his disciples' feet, Father, might we be a people marked by that kind of humility, by that kind of service, by that kind of love. And Father, as he left from there and went not just to, um, not just to wash feet, but to actually lay down his life on a cross so that, we might, that our sins might be forgiven and we might have new life. Father, might we, might we always be moved. Father, might we never be hard-hearted callous to his grace, to his mercy. 
but might that always stir our hearts that we might offer grace and mercy to others. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name and for him. Amen.